This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Amos Vang, and I will be your host for this episode. Audax et Chaler, bold and swift. This describes the Royal Canadian Dragoons. Through service and leadership, a Dragoon must be ready to make the difficult decisions and be ready to make these decisions quickly. Occasionally, lawyers and legal professionals also must be bold and swift in their careers and quickly adapt to certain situations. As I said in an earlier episode, a strong leader must decide on the matters of today that will affect the events of tomorrow. So, it should not be a surprise that my guest for today is a person that has been bold, swift, and versatile in her career. My guest is national security expert and Canadian Armed Forces Captain, Professor Leah West. In 2003, Professor West pursued a Bachelor of Arts Honors in Politics with a minor in History at the Royal Military College. During her time as an officer cadet, she won many awards, honors, and incredible experiences. She was a member of the CISM volleyball team at the 2003 World Games in Catania, Italy, and played in the World Volleyball Championships in 2004. She was a three-time academic all-Canadian volleyball player in Canadian inter-university sport, now known as U-Sports Canada. She was also a recipient of the Ontario University Athletics Woman of Influence Award. She received the Canadian Defence Academy Profession of, of Arms Award for Excellence in Military Professionalism. And in 2007, she received the Sword of Excellence for being the top overall cadet in her graduating class. After graduating from the RMC, she joined the Royal Canadian Dragoons and was deployed to Afghanistan. From 2007 to 2009, Professor West was an armored troop leader. She would lead tactical deployments of armored reconnaissance in Afghanistan. From 2009 to 2010, she was an executive assistant to the commanding general of the Joint Task Force Central in regards to security at the G8 and G20 summits. From 2010 to 2011, she was a task force current ops officer in Kandahar and worked with special forces teams from the UK, US, Australia, and USDA in counterterrorism and drug interdiction operations inside Kandahar. From 2011 to 2012, she became a production coordinator and reserve IT cell leader and oversaw the logistics of the Canadian Army Reserve. After completing her deployment in Afghanistan, she completed a Master of Arts in Intelligence Studies at American Military University in 2012. In 2015, Professor West then completed a Juris Doctor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. In 2018, she completed a Master of Laws at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. And in 2020, she completed a Doctor of Juridical Science at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. Very recently, at the end of 2020, Professor West co-authored and co-published a book alongside Professor Craig Forsey's, the book titled National Security Law. Currently, Professor West is an assistant professor and associate director of international affairs and national security law, counterterrorism, and cyber operations at Carleton University and legal counsel at Friedman Mansour LLP. Bold, swift, and versatile, Professor Leah West is my guest today. Professor, thank you for your service. 
And thank you so much for coming on on the show. Oh, thank you for that very generous introduction. <laughs> so let's start from the beginning. And normally for my guests, the first question that I would ask is what inspired you to go to law school? But in your case, I think it's more appropriate to go even earlier than that. What inspired you to go to the RMC? Well, um, ever since I was 10 years old, I'd actually anticipated um, joining the military. Um, it had been my dream to be a fighter pilot and to go to the U.S. Air Force Academy, actually, something that I had become hooked on at 10 years old. Um, but in my final year of high school, um, that was 2001, um, obviously events dramatically changed my understanding and my conception of the world and what joining the military would look like. And rather than pursue a career with the U.S. Armed Forces, which is what I had always expected, I had decided that I wanted to stay and fight alongside Canadians because that's where I'd grown up. Um, so I applied to go to Royal Military College instead. Um, that summer, I actually ended up losing my sight um, due to a, a really bad bacterial infection. So I wasn't able to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I switched, switched into something as equally as sexy as I, uh, in my opinion, and uh, that was the Armored Corps. That's really nice. And as you started your time at the RMC, take us through a day in the life in the, of an officer cadet at the RMC. For you, what was a day like there? Um, I think it's largely the same now as it was back then, maybe a little bit different, but typically... A day starts rather early um, throughout your career there. Um, there's usually some sort of morning activity that involves either inspections or military training or, um, you, know, uh, you know, sports, a run, something start, starting early, starting around 637. Um, and you have to remember that um, everyone within the college lives on campus together. So after that, it means everyone is eating together in a big dining hall. And then um, the program, the academic program RNC is different than most universities and that's co-curricular. So even though I was an artsman, I did have um, to complete um, studies in chemistry and math and um, sciences. So you typically end up in class from eight to four, unlike most universities. I mean, you're also required to complete French training every single day until you're deemed bilingual. Um, because I was a varsity athlete, um, it also meant that my evenings were spent at the gym um, training. So I played volleyball and I even played uh, half a half a, a, um, a season as, with the basketball team. Um, and uh, so, you know, three hours a day working out and training at the gym and then you come back and everyone eats dinner together and then you are in your room studying um getting your uniforms ready for the next day um and it, it is very routine it's very much like that day after day that's a very intense uh, schedule but since it's your daily life essentially for four years to me it sounds like you would adapt very quickly and it becomes, you become used to it very quickly on, especially in the first couple of weeks for it. So how are you able to balance all that time? Your, your training, school, volleyball career. How did you balance all of that? Well, ultimately that's what RMC is training you to do. 
is to manage a variety of pressures and to figure out, you know, exactly how to be able to accomplish all the things you need to do in a day. And, and some of the, the biggest learning or lessons that are taught to you, especially in those first, you know, six weeks of first year orientation period, is all about time management, about doing things quickly so that you can plan ahead. Um, in the military, um, we always think about timing backwards. So what, what is the mission and what does it need to be achieved by? And then you work back to think, oh, all the things that you need to accomplish that and how long will those things take? And you work backwards to figure out how you're going to manage the time you have to achieve all of that. And I think um, realistically, that's a, a thing that never leaves you um, even after the military. Certainly. I think these are skills that are also important for civilians as well, especially nowadays with the millennial Gen Z generation. Something that I've been seeing that's been lacking is that level of discipline and being able to work backwards and to, to reflect, to self-reflect. That's something that I've been seeing up until the pandemic, actually, I, I've seen a bit of a lack in that, at least in my generation. With the pandemic, now it's forced everyone to stay at home. It, it's given them a lot more time to think and a lot more time to really kind of catch up on things that they've been, not been able to do before. But that level of discipline is something that I think a lot of civilians, once again, would really benefit from. And it would help their careers a lot, greatly. Well, I think it, it's one of those things, that you, it's the eight-old adage, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, right? And it's because the busy person knows how to schedule and plan their, the, the limited time that they have. When you don't have all kinds of time at your disposal, right, you have to make the greatest possible use of what you do have, and you figure out how to do that. Um, and so I, I don't know that it's a generational thing, but I do think that, um, you know, facing pressure Facing time pressure is something that, um, you know, especially as lawyers, you know, you're really going to need to deal with, right? You know, the, the court doesn't care if um, all of a sudden, you know, three other things piled on your lap at the same time that you have a deadline to the court, right? You need to be able to adapt and manage your time in those and that pressure. So I think it's really important skill to manage. And, and part of law school is that, right, is managing all the numerous things that you have on your plate, um, being able to accomplish it, and also being able to do those uh, kind of secondary tasks that are really important um, to develop your networking skills, your mooting skills, et cetera. Um, so I think all of these things, you need to think of it as, as learning how to manage time and, and really reflecting on your capacity and what is working for you um, in terms of managing your time. And if you're constantly having to ask for extensions or you're, if you're constantly having to drop the ball on things or drop commitments, taking that step back to think, how can I do this better? Um, and I think, you know, take that opportunity in law school now to manage that where the, um, the repercussions of failing to meet deadlines or trying new things are less significant than when you're out in the real world working for a firm or with clients that expect certain things of you. Certainly. And t as you mentioned, time management is such an important skill. First-year law students would relate with this a lot, especially here at Ottawa U, where they front-load everything, seven courses on, on us throughout the entire year. They're all, they're mo almost all of them are year-long courses, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge jump. I would, I would argue that it's actually the jump between your previous degree or your work or, or, your, or if, if you took some time off working to law school is a, 
is even larger of a jump than your jump from grade 12 to university. Uh, well, if, if you went to, to, a, to a civilian university because of just how much work that's just being piled on onto the, to the, front, to the front end. But I always tell this with my, with my colleagues, especially at the end of first year, first semester, it's like I grew an extra muscle inside my brain, basically. So I, like, I'm able to think a lot faster. I'm able to react a lot faster. I'm able to adapt a lot faster. And there are certain points that I can, I can just quickly catch within seconds, whereas it would have taken me, well, probably like 30 minutes to, to do it back, back before law school started. So time management really is something. But, and, and I think a lot of law students are, are, especially by third year at this time, they would at least be decent at, at time management. And yeah, uh, I, yeah, I think that that's true. I think the thing that you learn, especially in first semester, people tell you you're learning how to read like a lawyer or think like a lawyer. I think my perspective on these, you're learning how to filter, right? You're learning how to filter the important facts. You're learning how to filter what the legal arguments are down to what's really important and put the rest aside. Um, you know, when I went to law school, I was older, but I played varsity volleyball again. I had one year of eligibility left. So I was back playing with U of T, which is an even bigger program. And was again, three hours in the day in the gym um, every day. And to be quite honest, I relished that forced time away from studying because I really do think that you're right. In your first year of law school, you could sit down and read 24 hours a day, seven days a week and still not accomplish everything (laughs) that's being thrown at you. But I really do think that part of surviving and thriving in law school is forcing yourself to put the books down and do something else that's healthy for you. Um, and again, that requires time management. But I think when you hit, when you go back to the books, you're better for it. Certainly. And from your volleyball career, I'm glad you mentioned it because as I mentioned it in the intro, you've had a stellar volleyball career throughout your entire time in university. Looking back at your stats, you were the OCAA East Regional All-Star, the highest scoring middle in the OUA in the 2005-2006 season, and the 14th highest overall scoring player in the OUA. And with these stats, with these numbers, it's, it's, it's no surprise why you played in the World Volleyball Championships. Nowadays, the caliber of Canadian University Volleyball has reached new heights. As a sportscaster myself, I also announced volleyball for the GGs. And although they play now in the RSCQ, back then they used to play in the OUA, there's a lot of championship level teams, even in Quebec, that are just wow. You, you just see they're just improving. It seems like with each game as well. I mean, the speed, power, harmonic teamwork—they've really grown over the years, and even the audience too. We have now matches on YouTube, OUA TV, and other platforms under U Sports Canada. Now they changed the name uh, four and a half years ago from CIS to U Sports, but back then. When it was still CIS and when you were still computing, competing, rather, what was the caliber of university volleyball like? And how did your training at RMC prepare you against the OUA's top teams and the world championship teams? Well, I, I think, you know, I, we went from being a college team to a university team while I was at RMC. We, we shifted. And I always, to some extent, regretted that because RMC at the time had about 900 students and about 250 women and we were trying to field university team caliber teams of volleyball, soccer, basketball, and fencing. From the t- pool of 250 women we had, um, 
it's quite challenging to be competitive in all of those sports at a massive school like York with 60,000 students, never mind with 900. Um, and so, you know, playing on a team where you realize that um, I, I lost every game for three years. And it's very hard to play for a team and devote the limited time you have every day to a sport um, when you know that your chance for team success is unlikely, just given the sheer, sheer reality. Um, so I had to refocus to thinking about things about what could I achieve individually um, obviously, volleyball, I think, is the, the single sport where there's no possibility of, of scoring on your own. Right? There's no way to rebound a ball, bring it down the court, and shoot a layup and score for your team. Right? Just the way that the sport is, that's not possible. Um, so you always have to have team success to have individual success, but that was the way I had to reframe it. So reframing what success meant. And I think... Um, that's also a really important skill because especially as lawyers, you're not going to win every case, but how can you frame success so that even if you know that you're unlikely to win, you can still walk away feeling like you've achieved what you set out to achieve um, and um, still finding a way to be hungry every game, um, you know, still finding that drive, even though, you know, that the likelihood of success isn't great. And I think those are really important skills that we can take anywhere. I mean, especially at the international level, Canada volleyball, when I played with the military team, right? Playing against a Chinese team that was largely made up of Olympic athletes. Again, we weren't likely to win, but how could we define success so that we could stay hungry and that we could work hard and walk away with something? And I think that's a skill that works um, across the board. And I was really lucky to have an opportunity to go from a team like RMC, you know, a scrappy little team, um, you know, sometimes we only had nine players, to playing with a massive program like U of T in my last year, playing with girls that would go on to be professionals around the world um, who already were on the national team and to be with such a, a, a fantastic coaching staff led by Christine Drakic. And um, I'll never... Like, again, it, it took a lot of time away from first year of law, but I'll never um, forget that experience to be part of such a big program, um, something I really, really cherish. And that's something that I also know from, from my colleagues who, who, played for, who played volleyball as well. That, that's something that, that they've also mentioned as well. Like, it's a very unique experience. It's, it's a very fun experience, and it's a great time to learn a lot of different things as well. Learning about yourself and learning about your team, as you mentioned, volleyball is a team sport it's impossible to score without a team and i think that's also why i see there's a very unique i don't want to say unique i would say distinctive harmony between volleyball team members because of that and because of just the time that they that they train as as well and that's something that I see in other sports, but not necessarily to the same distinctiveness as as volleyball and that's something that is pretty inspirational even for for the average uh, non athlete 
the non-athletic person, the the, uh, the ability to work as a team. Oftentimes, we're told that we have to be strong individually, which is true. We we do have to be strong individuals. But sometimes you can only, but not just sometimes, but a lot of times you can only do so much on your own. You need a support group, and especially in your case, not only playing volleyball, but also being a part of the RMC and deploying to to Afghanistan after your graduation from the RMC. So the deployment call came and you then knew that you were going to go to Afghanistan. What were the days leading up to the day you left for Afghanistan like? What was the atmosphere like for you and your comrades? Um, I think I think it may have been more stressful than a lot of the time we were actually overseas, which may seem odd to some people, but it's because you're dealing with the unknown for a lot of us. Some had already deployed, but for a lot of us, it's the unknown. And you're trying to do everything you possibly can with the time that you have to be sure you're prepared. Um, so constantly training. It, it, it really is. Um, you, leave, you do leave your home for, the most, for many of us to train because you need to be entirely immersed in what you're doing. You know, both physically training, getting your body ready, but mentally training, you know, I was gobbling up everything I could read about Afghanistan and Afghanistan's history with Russia, about um, early operations during the evenings. And then during the day, you're constantly br- practicing drills, making sure you have both the milita- military, you know, core skills, like your shooting skill set, for example, your, your ability to, you know, maintain your vehicles, all that kind of nuts and bolts stuff, but also the in my case, because I ran the operations center, we needed to make responding to crisis part of our muscle, our muscle memory. So constantly rehearsing various crises and how we would respond so that we could be that well-oiled machine when it actually happened because nobody in Afghanistan gives a crap that you just got there, right? Um, and we, the way it works is that headquarters are offset with battle groups. So for the most part, that the guys on the ground at the pointy end of things have been there and we come in. And, you know, when they call back and call sign zero is a, a new voice, they don't care. They expect the same response that that call sign would have given them after nine months of being on the ground. Um, so it really is doing everything you possibly can, but at the same time, not knowing really what it's going to be like Um so it's it's really quite stressful, um, and uh, but it, it's it's an amazing experience. The whole deployment and pre-deployment part of your military time, because you are singularly focused on the mission. Um, there's so little opportunity in your life when. Yes, you're working 18 hours a day, but there's nothing else to do because you're not having to run home and take your dog for a walk or, you know, get your kids to practice. It is your entire life. It is your entire being, but it also makes the transition back to real life pretty hard. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I can imagine. And my next question was essentially take us through a day in Afghanistan from what you're able to speak on, of course. What was a typical, typical day rather in the life of Captain Leah West? Um, and so my life would have been different than everybody else's there, right? I mean, everyone has their a unique job and responsibility. And um, my job was to run the operations center for Task Force Kandahar, which essentially met 
getting up really early and running in the dark around the, the base. Um, it's actually where I fell in love with running because it was the only time I ever got to be by myself. Um, and then um, going into work and being briefed by my night shift, my senior officer from my night shift, um, explaining what had happened, um, barring I hadn't been called in during the night for something. Um, and then, you know, reading everything that had been prepared overnight, stuff that had come in from Ottawa. Um, and then, you know, kind of preparing for the day's tasks ahead, um, depending on whether or not there was a, a mission that was planned or if it was just regular operations. Um, my job was to um, ensure that the commanders were briefed so that in, there was a morning uh, brief to our senior operations officer every morning with the whole team, um, so about 50 people. And then um, during the day, it was literally managing the minute-to-minute -minute issues on the ground across the, the province um, and preparing reporting back for Ottawa. And then at the end of the day, reporting back to the commander and his team and um, ensuring that they had all the information to, to assess you know, the success of the mission for the day. Uh, or the operations for the day. I had other roles. Again, good Canadian officers. We never only wear one hat. Um, <laughs> we don't have enough people for that. Um, so I was also the special forces liaison officer. So that meant that we were the battle space owner or the the ground, you know, kind of the landlord for the region. But there would be special forces operators who would want to conduct operations in the area, and my job was to um, work on those plans with them and ensure that they were approved and then see them through to the end. And I also uh, was responsible for um, our female engagement strategy, which is something that, you know, I put on myself, but it was really about taking an operational mandate from the ISAF Commander General McChrystal to, in to find ways to engage more with women as women, um, which was something that uh, we tried to get into place before we left the area. Wow, that is the definition of versatility. You know, being able to go across <laughs> so many different uh, positions so quickly and mastering all of them, essentially. That well, I don't know about mastery, but I, I would say that it is not uncommon, right? That is that is how our Canadian forces works, and um, I think it's you know it's one of the strengths of our of the Canadian military is our people. We do you know we do take it for our, sometimes our equipment or our lack of numbers, but the people that we have are versatile and can adapt on the fly and are really the, the military's greatest strength. So what were the greatest challenges that you faced in your time in Afghanistan and how did you overcome these challenges? Um, I would say, and I've talked about this before, um, my biggest per challenge was personal in the sense that um, I was quite young. I was really the only woman responsible for a team of people, of men who were um, if not older than me, more experienced. Um, and I had been given some direction that I don't, that I took to heart and it really, um, caused me to change my leadership style in a way to be more aggressive, um, as a way of feeling t that I needed to make up for my youth or my gender. And I wasn't true to myself and I think because of that, I at times was a very ineffective leader um, because I, it's rather than inspiring um, times, I mean, there's always different times for different leadership styles, 
but I think there were more times I could have really inspired my team, the kind of that transformational leadership style to be better and accomplish the task more successfully rather than demanding, demanding it of them. Um, and, you know, when your team doesn't feel inspired by their leader and they're doing things either out of fear or out of obligation, you don't get the best out of them. And um, I think that that was a big lesson that I learned um, while I was there. And looking back at your time in Afghanistan, what do you miss the most? What are some of the things that you miss the most from your time in Afghanistan? Um, <laughs> um, that's a great question. The thing I miss the most is having all of the information. And I think that this is part of why I loved intelligence and I you know, pursued the legal career that I did is I loved being the person that had all of the information about what was going on. Um, I, you know, I was, you know, as they say, information is power, but I really did love knowing everything that was going on um, and then being able to find the right assets um, to respond to what was going on. Um, and, you know, when you are the person that has all the information, and this is true of law as well, when you have all the information, people come to you and they want your advice. And um, just, you know, knowing that that was the case, it just felt so satisfying and gratifying. It was a real, a job that I found very, very, very gratifying um, was, you know, the skill sets that made me successful as a lawyer, my ability to digest a lot of information and synthesize it quickly were really valued in that job. And um, I really enjoyed it. Certainly. And, and you would know this very, very well in your current and currently as, as a lawyer, but sometimes we don't have the answer to everything, <laughs> everything, yeah. you know, we have to create the answer oftentimes. And I know that the answer should have been, you know, helping the local Afghan people and getting to interact with the people there. And I know that that obviously is the the answer people would probably expect to give. But I think that that's not unique to my position, right? Um, um, I think everyone that deployed obviously felt a need and a desire to safeguard um the things we cherish as Canadians. But the thing that was really unique to my position and why I answered the question the way I did was, um, you know, that being at the center of it all. I, I think a lot of law students could relate to that too. I mean, one misconception that some people who are not familiar with, with the law is that, oh, the law has all the answers. We, it, it, the answers <laughs> are just right there. You know, it, my case is <laughs> X, Y, and Z. But that's not how the law works. You know, that's not how life works either. So... Sometimes you have to find the answer for it. Sometimes you have to create the answer for it. Sometimes there just isn't an answer yet, but it will come. But it will come with time. And that's something that I think a lot of law students can, can relate to that because oftentimes, especially early on in their law school careers, people in their social circle who are not a part of law will be thinking, oh, you're in law school. You're pretty much a lawyer now. Could I ask you a question about da 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 da? It's like, I don't know the answer to this. I mean, I can't even give it anyways, but. I mean, I don't, I, I, I can't, I, I don't know the full answer to it because, you know, it's not that simple. So that's, yeah, that's something that I think a lot of students can, can relate to on a very, very fundamental level, regardless of what year they are in, in terms of, of their law school uh, career. So what inspires you to go to law school 
after Afghanistan? Um, I'd always, I would say I watched too much Legally Blonde when I was an undergrad, uh, and that might be part of it. Um, but uh, um, I, to be honest, I never thought about it until I was in undergraduate, my undergraduate um, program. And it really wasn't even a sure thing as I was applying. I, you know, the, I did my good pros and cons chart of all the different things I wanted to do. Um, you know, I kind of knew that I wanted to expand myself in, in, into a new direction, but I wasn't sure what. I, I did my foreign service exams. I thought about um, switching over into a different realm of the military. I thought about law school. And, um, but the preparation and application for law school as I was doing it alongside with those other things really solidified it for me as I, you know, you're writing those personal statements. Um, but I guess I did have a really kind of transformational experience when I was in Afghanistan where I was trying to, um, you know, think about winning the war. And I use bunny quotes, as I say that in a different way about bringing, you know, representing the women of Afghanistan and making sure that their voices were heard and making sure that they had recourse when they were wronged. Right. And, and had someone capable of fighting on their behalf um, with a system that was really, you know, set up so that they really didn't have a voice. Um, and, and that process and kind of a, an interaction that I had with someone there um, was the, I guess, was what I referred to in my personal statements as I was applying for law school. And it really was true because it was about, it was a different way of fighting the same war about, you know, protecting and advancing the cause of, of Afghan people. And I felt that like, you know, anybody could, not anyone, but there were a whole lot of people out there who could probably be pretty good armored officers, but I felt that my skill set was better suited to advancing the cause of women in Afghanistan or the people of Afghanistan through advocacy. Certainly. And th that was, and especially with going back just a little bit briefly to your time in Afghanistan, you mentioned uh, as being, I think it was the only woman in that leadership role at the time, or one of the few women at, at the very least. I mean, you were breaking a lot of ground. You were breaking a lot of, uh, not just stereotypes, but also break, not just breaking stereotypes, but also breaking a lot of ground on a lot of new groundwork where, you were setting the pace for future women to be coming on to the Canadian Armed Forces. So that was well, a pretty big job there too. I, I would say yes, but actually while I was there, there was even bigger ground being broken. There were three women in the infantry. Um, one um, in particular who was the fe first female um, infantry company commander um, infantry platoon commanders. My friend Ashley Collette ended up winning. You know, she's the highest, most decorated um, female officer for uh, you know combat that she faced while I was overseas. So seeing my female colleagues at the same time um, was really remarkable. And I, and again, but they were advancing the cause of the of Afghanistan in the more traditional infantry role, and you know proving that they could accomplish that task as women. Um, and, you know, I kind of felt like we were in pretty good hands on that front um, so I, that I could use 
you know, a different skill set that I had uh, to advance the cause in a different way. But really, realistically, while I was there, that that 2000 kind of 10 timeline was really groundbreaking for women in the Canadian forces. Certainly is. And the work that you and your and, and your your friend did has really made waves a lot to this day now. And I, I, I look forward to seeing what uh, what the future of the Canadian Armed Forces is going to look like in the next 10 years. However, and however long I get to live uh, in, in this world. <laughs> I hope it's longer than 10 years, Amos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So returning back to, uh, to, to law school, what did you find was similar between your time in law school and your time in Afghanistan? Uh, the lack of sleep. <laughs> and the needing to carve out time for physical activity <laughs> that's probably it and the you know eating too much at my desk definitely yeah. <laughs> that's that's a bit of a guilty pleasure for me too whenever i study you know and uh yeah. n- nothing beats a good especially on a friday for me a night a full bag of popcorn and just a whole list of youtube videos <laughs> you know from uh from Mr. Beast or whoever is the top YouTubers nowadays. So moving on to where you are currently now with national security, when did you first realize you wanted to work in the national security legal sphere? Um, so I didn't go to law school expecting that. To be quite honest, um, I thought maybe I might be an, a sports lawyer and represent all my female volleyball friends who are having a hard time finding legal representation. Um, but actually my... I went to U of T. My very first law class was first year crim law with Kent Roach, who, if anybody knows the field, understands that Kent Roach is kind of the granddaddy of national security law in Canada. And I'd just done my master's in um, looking at the use of big data for counterterrorism. And this was pre-Snowden. He soon made my work irrelevant. Um, But Uh, I didn't really understand that what I was studying from an intelligence side was this phenomena we call in national security law intelligence to evidence. And Professor Roach kind of mentioned it in class because he was talking about himself and his role in the Air India inquiry. And uh, it kind of dawned on me that, you know, the two things were related. And I chased after him after that very first class down the hall to his office and I think that was kind of the beginning of the end, um, developing an interest in, continuing to develop an interest in the role between the world of intelligence and intelligence collectors and what actually ends up um, being used to advance legal arguments. Um, And I just continued to pursue opportunities. I got really lucky. The constitutional litigator in-house for the Asper Center, which is a constitutional clinic that does a lot of interventions at the Supreme Court. My second year happened to be, who's now Justice John Norris, who um, became, you know, much more than a mentor to me, but he was working on a big case at the Supreme Court called Harcat, which is again a big national security case. I got to summer at the Crown Law Office in Newmarket, which one would think would have very little to do with terrorism, but there just happened to be a lawyer there who had come back from Crown Law Criminal and still had carriage of a file for the VO Rail terrorism case, and I got to work with her. And I got, you know, so much about where you end up in law really is about luck and timing and just, you know, chasing after every opportunity that you think sounds interesting. 
um, especially in niche areas of the law. Um, so I just, you know, kind of did that doggedly and I wound up finding, finding an area of law that I was really passionate about. And to be honest, I never expected that right out of clerking that I would end up working in the field. I, I had anticipated working in criminal law as a way of getting my foot in the door, but I, I just got exceptionally lucky in finding myself at a legal services unit serving CSIS at the end of my time at the federal court. And with your unique experience in the military, I would imagine that the, uh, the education and discussion around national security, well, for, for us at least, for, for me and for most of my colleagues, it's been mostly from a civilian standpoint. What are the similarities and the differences between the military perspective on national security and the civilian perspective on national security? I don't know if it's necessary civilian versus military, but I do think it's from the operator's perspective versus the, you know, the perspective of the, the lawmaker or the advocate, right? Um, which to be fair, part of reason why I jumped into academia rather than staying inside um, the Department of Justice was because there wasn't anybody thinking in terms of national security from an operator's perspective when they were talking about the law. And, um, and I think that that's problematic. We need a diversity of perspectives, obviously, and national security law suffers from the fact that we're all white, for one, um, especially in the national security law academic sphere in Canada. Um, but there was also no women um, and there was nobody from an operator's perspective trying to understand what it's like to be an operator and working with clumsy or uncertain law when you have a mission you're trying to achieve and you're not trying to achieve it in a way that, you know, is unlawful, right? You know, our, our intelligence analysts, our military members, our police officers, like, for the most part, deeply believe in the charter values of Canada, right? They deeply believe in, in advancing the mission of Canada and to not, to have a mission and to believe so deeply in what they're trying to succeed, achieve, and then not knowing how to proceed because the law is unclear or because the law has been interpreted in a way that makes it completely cumbersome to actually achieve the objective. There wasn't anybody thinking about things from that perspective. And I think that's um, what I try to bring differently. Um, and it, it's not just the military side. It's also my time having worked with, with CSIS um, and, you know, having members of my family be law enforcement officers. Like I deeply believe everyone just wants to do the job and abide by the law as you talked about, sometimes you don't even know the answer yet, and the answer is going to have to come, but you still have people trying to protect Canadian national security and, you know, staring at this big black hole. And in your time working so far in national security, what were some misconceptions that a lot of people have about national security? This, this may be a bit of a broad question because national security involves everything from uh, anti-terrorism to national emergencies to foreign states, interference in politics and whatnot. So what are some misconceptions that you've seen that are very commonly held 
in regards to national security across these fields? I, I think for just from an outsider's perspective, I think a lot of people misconceive a lack of visible successes as a lack of success. Um, you know, there are a lot of ways to achieve the mission when the mission is securing Canadian national security that don't necessarily result in successful prosecutions um, or big press conferences in front of, you know, seized bombs or whatever, right? Um, you know, the fact that Canada is as safe as it is, isn't only because we're surrounded by three oceans and the United States. Um, I think there are problems with not, you know, necessarily bringing people who violate Canadian laws to justice. And that's, that's one thing, but I, I don't, I think people equate a lack of successful national security prosecutions with a failure of our, of our failure of our national security agencies to keep us safe. And that I, I think is a, flaw, a false premise. Sometimes the successes come from behind the scenes. And sometimes. Most uh, of the times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Certainly, certainly. And this would also culminate in your book alongside Professor Craig Forsey's National Security Law, which was just recently taught at the January semester of National Security Law taught by Professor Craig Forsey's and uh, Professor Michael Duffy as, as well. This book is essentially a comprehensive look at Canada's entire national security re legal regime. And as you know, as you, as, as you wrote, as you, as you found, a lot has changed even over the past six years since 2015. You know, Bill C-51 and the amendments that came after in the couple of years after, and now within CIRA, now being formed in 2019, just a year and a half ago, July 2019, as well. From what you're able to speak on, what were some of the challenges that you faced as you and Professor Forces were writing the book? Keeping it concise. <laughs> and we didn't do a great job because it's about 800 pages. Um, I think, you know, part of the challenge with a book like this is recognizing, you know, that it's not just enough to talk about the law itself because the law is bound to change before we can update it. So what are the key underlying principles and um, uh, goals um, and issues with the different legal regimes we're talking about and making sure that, that we were able to highlight those and identify them? Um, because that is, this, is what is less bound to change. So you're trying to educate the reader on the underlying principles um, some of the uncertain questions that exist, but also then explain the nuts and bolts. Um, and, and both Professor Forces and I, we don't agree on everything. And we also have our own little passion areas that, you know, do come up. There might be an extra paragraph in there that's in one section, but not in another. And you're asking yourself why. And it's basically just a marker so we can throw down areas that we um, feel very passionate about. But um, it's, that's not what the, the book is about. It's not about um, national security according to Professor Forces and Professor West. It, um, and so also trying to provide a neutral voice. And I, again, I think the fact that it's written by the two of us and we come at things from a very different perspective um, helps um, 
try and maintain that that more neutral voice as we're delivering this content. And it really, it really showed and it. And actually it was a very compre- a comprehensive uh, book. It, um, you know, I, I can tell from having just gone through a professor four season, professor Duffy's class that, you know, we covered every pretty much like it, it was actually quite easy, quite easy to read as well. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's quite easy, easy to read. It helps because of not only, you know, the, the, the language that's trying to be distilled down, but, like it, it, it was just a lot faster to digest than most other law textbooks because other law textbooks you go right into 1800s 19th century era law and it's like wow they write completely different you've got 10 different semicolons in the same sentence and i'm thinking <laughs> if we tried even using two of them uh that, that's a huge red flag nowadays so but it, it was a that is the benefit of national security law in canada being largely updated in the last 10 years is we've gotten rid of all of the extra semicolons yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes yes and one very very relevant area of national security is emergencies and you and mm-hmm. professor forces cover that a lot in the book as well Yes. Um, over the course of the writing, it became a lot more important. <laughs> um, we did start writing in 2017. Um, and so uh, we did have to go back to the emergencies chapter and uh, beef it up because we had a lot more examples of national security uh, or sorry, national emergency law being put into, into good use. And especially now, all of that extra work and that return to that chapter I think has been has really paid off dividends now with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Well, I hope it's been useful. We did we did put it onto online and make it available, and I know it's been downloaded quite a bit. Um, and I know both Professor Forces and I were um, in contact with a lot of lawmakers trying to understand the area because it is you know one that we typically don't see used. And I think that the really fascinating thing from an academic perspective is the fact that this is kind of a little legal laboratory. Um, You know, each province has invoked their emergency and public health law to manage the exact same crisis. And how has that worked out across the province from province to province? Where have those pieces of legislation or the orders resulting from them fallen short or been sufficient and it really does allow for this little natural experiment, um, legal experiment across the board that is really, really interesting and exceptionally unique. Um, and so I think down the road, once we've had time to kind of step back and assess, um, you know, I think it'll be, there'll be a lot of really interesting lessons learned. Um, and I hope we can take those lessons and, you know, make sure that our emergency laws down the road reflect those lessons. That's what I hope so as well, because one thing that was really disturbing to me is that healthcare systems around the world were not adequately prepared for even a pande- an epidemic. We saw that with SARS and H1N1, and we saw how even those, those were, don't get me wrong, epidemics already bad enough, but we, we saw just how much we struggled even with those viruses. It seems to me, frankly, that most people thought that a pandemic was highly improbable in this day and age, and that even if, did, if one did happen, we would be prepared. Evidently, we're not, by any definition. 
the overwhelmed hospitals, the second wave cases, the horrifying economic consequences, and the national security crises, that's just with a virus that has a 1% mortality rate. I can only imagine what would happen if a virus like H5N1, a virus which which has a 75% to 90% mortality rate would do to the world. And this is actually based off, off of my uh, discussions in class with, uh, with Professor Craig Forces. And he mentioned how there are some viruses that have, well, you know, that high of a mortality rate. It's a nightmare scenario for me because if we have so much trouble dealing with a 1% mortality rate virus like COVID-19, I can't imagine how we can deal with something like a 75% mortality rate. What would national security look like in this scenario? Like, <laughs> how do we deal with something like that? Well, I think almost the one thing I would say is that your fears should be somewhat assuaged by the fact that we're learning those lessons now with a low mortality um, disease or virus, I should say, right? That's, a, that's the benefit, right? We are learning these lessons. We are going to be dealing with the economic consequences of those lessons, such that unlike SARS, for example, or Ebola, where it was quite easy for us to forget that it happened after it did, um, that I don't think, you know, we're going to easily forget the lessons learned of dealing with coronavirus. Um, so that, you know, going forward, I mean, this is the, the 9-11 of the 2020s. Right? It's the event that changes national priorities. Um, and, I, and I'm heartened to know, to believe that learning the lessons now in a virus that is catastrophic, obviously, but as you say, not as catastrophic as others could be, that we will be better prepared um, for what I presume to be future events. And, and I'll just correct you, I don't think that it's that nobody thought that this would happen. I mean, people who are, whose job it is to understand threats to national security, I mean, it was identified as a threat to Canadian national security in 2003, um, knew. Um, but the, the big question for a government with limited resources and a finite set of priorities is where to put those resources and what, what to focus on. Um, and I think now going forward, not just with pandemics, but with climate-related disasters, you know, public welfare emergencies, which is what this is, rather than, you know, a national defense emergency, um, I think will be top of mind for governments moving forward. At least I hope so. Um, and we'll rebalance our national security priorities um, to face those issues. And that's also my hope once again as well, that not only do we learn the lessons, but apply those in the future, not only within our lifetimes, but also within our, our, our future generations' lifetimes as well. COVID has done, has taken a massive toll on everyone's mental health. And in one sense, COVID really has opened a lot of people's eyes to what the reality looks like right now. And to, for most people, the future is very uncertain. The uncertain economic future, the health future, the long-term future in general has taken a, a big toll. It's gone to a point where millennials and Gen Zs, especially, 
and even the next unnamed generation after Gen Zs, they're starting to be called the new lost generations. And I think I speak on behalf of a lot of law students in particular that all of us have felt helpless at some point in the pandemic, especially for those of us that are graduating. It's a scary, scary future. It's easy to say that we're not alone, but it sure feels like and looks like we are with social distancing and the lack of career opportunities. We keep hearing that everything is going to be okay. And we've been told that for most of our lives, but things are getting pretty bad. And it, it looks like there's just no end in sight to how bad it's going. The vaccine has given us some hope, of course, but I mean, it's still a long way off until we see the end of it. It's quite difficult to stay hopeful. As a person that has been through the most intellectually demanding of scenarios and through the most dangerous situations, I mean, a, an actual war zone, what advice would you give to law students and really to everyone else in the audience about facing the pandemic's unprecedented challenges and about the future ahead? That's a big order. Um, I'm someone who struggled with anxiety and depression my entire life. Um, and obviously, this is a crisis where more people than ever are dealing with those symptoms. Um, the thing that I found that has helped me manage the current environment and my anxiety and my history of depression um, is to bring my frame of reference closer to home, to make my world a little bit smaller. Um, because if we are constantly thinking about the world at large <laughs> and everything facing us, we can't get our arms around that problem. There's no way. Um, but bringing my, my point of reference, um, being more mindful about my community, you know, whether it's my class or my, my university or my, my bubble, right? Um, my family. Obviously, I think a lot of us have spent a lot more time. My mom moved in with me, you know, which is a weird thing for a 35-year-old woman. Um, uh, but really kind of focusing on what I can control within my community and how I can work to make my community better um, is really what I, that's what I can control. I can control that um, rather than everything. I can't control everything. Um, and, you know, just kind of bringing my, you know, in the military, we're often looking out at the horizon, right? And then you, if you spot something on the horizon, someone says, asks you how far out, right? Because if you just say, look up ahead, there's something there, you know, that not everyone's going to look at a different point on the horizon. You need to find that kind of common point and bringing that common point of, fo that point of focus closer to home um, has just really been helpful. Um, and I know that that might seem trite because the world's problems are huge, but uh, I think getting, trying to put my arms around problems I can solve um, are the ones that I can touch, the, the, the community I can have, um, that has been kind of my saving grace. And I think, you know, 
you, everyone listening to this podcast has their own community, whatever it is, right? And you have a place in it. You have things that you value within it. And you probably have a way that you can work towards making it better. Um, and I would, I think that if you start there, that's, that might be a good way of kind of continuing to put one foot in front of the other for the next little while. Certainly uh, advice that uh, I think is, is a good reminder for, for everyone, for, for everyone that you can't control everything that, you know, you can only control the things that you have right now, but just to, you know, hope for the best for the future. And, uh, but not just hope you can take action for but, sure. Um, but find those actions that are meaningful that you can actually affect where you can affect change. For sure. And, and as, we, as we start to conclude this episode, anything that you would like to say to the audience in regards to, you know, especially to, to the graduating law students as well, anything that, that you would like to, to, to tell them about uh, the future and about their careers? I think it's a really daunting time um, that, that end, the end is nigh uh, on law school, right? Um, it's a really, really daunting time, and I. Some people were, are going to go off, and work at shiny, fancy firms, big firms. Some people are going to get clerkships. Some people are not. Um, and I think the important thing is that not to compare yourself to other people, um, because quite frankly, you don't you won't necessarily want what those other people want um, just because people have certain positions that look fancier than others doesn't mean a person will get as much out of it as you might have at your single practitioner firm or if you're doing the law practice program doesn't mean that that person is going to end up um, happier in their career or more successful. Um, you know, it's this Everyone is going to have such a different career once you leave law school and take so many bazillion different paths that it is wrong to think of yourself as lesser or better, quite frankly, if you are one of those people with the fancy jobs than others. Um, and I just think that that is a, a waste of energy. Um, so just focus on whatever it is that you're about to do next and try and squeeze as much learning out of it um, in your articling experience as possible and go from there and just don't don't pay attention to what other people are doing um, because it's it's not it, it's at the end of the day it's meaningless to you certainly and uh, one piece of advice that I was given in my first year of law school was that everyone is running their own race so exactly that is yeah. that is the perfect way to uh, to really summarize and uh, to, to close this episode, we've gone through a lot of different things. And uh, Professor, thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing your experiences from, from what you were able to accomplish over the past 15 or so, or so years. It, it, I think it's quite inspirational for a lot of our, a lot of our students, uh, a lot of our audience uh, members. And I think a lot, of, a, lo a lot of them will take solace in the fact that, you know, it's, it, there will be better times coming up and not Thanks. just saying and, it. 
And I'll just say, I'm a millennial. So all that millennial crap, I don't believe in it either. (laughs) (laughs) We're not all wasted. (laughs) Nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) So, but once again, thank you so much, Professor, for coming on the show. And also thank you for your service as well to Canada. My pleasure. Thank you for this. And thank you also to our audience for listening to this episode of The Law School Show. This was Professor Leah West, who was on our podcast today. You can follow her on Twitter at Leah West underscore NSL. And you can also follow her on her podcast, The Intrepid Podcast. There's a website for that. I'll leave a link to that. It is intrepidpodcast.com. And for especially for our law students, but really for anyone who's interested, you can also pick up her book that she co-authored alongside Craig, uh, Professor Craig Forsey's National Security Law. And also leave a link in the description of the episode for that as well. Join us next time on another episode of The Law School Show. Until next time, this is Amos Vang signing off for now. Stay safe, stay healthy. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.